Uh, this is Radio Blackout. Thanks for listening. We have some excellent freeform programming coming up um, after this show. Uh, immediately after this, uh, we're going to have Living Writers with T. Hetzel. Um, the Living Writer featured today is uh, Andre Kodresk. Um, it's a pre-recorded show, uh, just to let you guys know. Um, so don't call in or anything with questions because you'll just get me and I'll tell you that the show has been pre-recorded. Uh, after that, we have free speech radio news, followed by closets are for clothes, followed by the Saruman show, followed by the local music show tonight on the local music show, Jib Kidder. That's at 9 p.m. You don't want to miss it. His music is awesome. And um, yeah, you should definitely tune in for that. Following the local music show is the Hardcore Punk Show with Aaron. Then No Shirt, No Radio with Bennett, which will bring you into the late night programming. So lots of great, great freeform uh, coming up your way. So keep it locked all day long on WCBN. Where else would you want to, you know, listen to radio at? Ah. Okay. All right. Without further ado, I present to you the amazing musical talents of Arthur Russell. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with some more funky freeform. This is DJ Blackout signing off, reminding you always to stay positive, stay motivated, and stay free, y'all. Peace out.
You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Welcome to the Living Writers Program. Today on Living Writers, T. Hetzel interviews Andre Codrescu. And now that if I've got your last name pronounced correctly, may I call you Andre for the rest of the program? Yeah. That'll do it. <laughs> okay. No, I'll, I'll keep attempting. Um, welcome. So you just, this, this I should say, we're, we're taping the show. Um, it's December 8th, 2009. Um, and you've come to town. You're going to give a talk at Rackham Auditorium and sign some, sign some books at Borders. And um, is this part of your, the post-human data guide um, world domination tour? Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, the world domination tour already happened. That was about 11 cities in uh, as soon when the book came out. That was in spring, was it? I was looking in at your... In the spring. Okay. Now it's the 20th anniversary of the revolutions or uh, revolts in uh, Eastern Europe and uh, Romania, which had a, a violent episode in 1999 that I covered for NPR and ABC News, and so I'm part of a symposium on, uh, on 20 years after. So that's pretty... That's heavy stuff. Well, it's heavy, but it's also part of the history of uh, Dada and the post-human Dada guide. It's all what isn't really my area of concern, which is you know the oddness of the world. It's, it should be everyone's concern, right? We're all some people for find the it normal. It's extraordinary, <laughs> or they just have to keep going, right? <laughs> With that. Well, but without further ado, I'm going to read the short um, biography. Um, from the back of the post-human data guide, uh, Zara and Lenin play chess. Um, and this is out, uh, as we said, this last spring with Princeton uh, University Press. Andre Kodrescu is an award-winning writer and national public radio commentator, the author of many essay collections, including The Disappearance of the Outside. He is the McCurdy Dis Distinguished Professor of English at Louisiana State University. Now retired? Yes. Okay. And and let's and we'll fill in the, the rest of your, writer bio as we go. We, we, uh, sure, we can also forget about the writer bio since. Uh, <laughs> well, let's talk about <laughs> it. Yeah, because then we we'll can be just talk about the book. Right? Yeah. Well, well, when did you? Well, let's start with the book, and then I'd like to hear when you started writing, because I think you were a, a wee lad when you when you began. But um, the post-human data guide. Um, Tristan Tzara, am I saying his name correctly, yeah, Andre? Yeah, that's right, Tristan Tzara. Um, and Lenin mm -hmm. play chess. This is an imaginative construct um, <sighs> as a way to, to, to build this guide, because it's not a manifesto. It's actually sort of something you can put in your pocket and take with you into the surreal of the real. Right. Well, it, is, uh, it looks like a guide. It is a manifesto. It's also a historical... Um, 
gathering of, uh, of facts. Uh, and not so imaginary ones, because uh, Tirsten Zara and uh, uh, the, the one of the founders of the Dada art and uh, art movement uh, was in Zurich in 1916 at the same time as Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, the daddy of the Russian Revolution. And Einstein. Einstein was there, was the city of Carl Jung, James Joyce was around. Um, there are only two coffee houses in town, uh, L'Odeon and, uh, and Café de la Terrasse. And what these refugees from all over World War One were doing in Zurich in, in 1916 was to wait and to play chess and uh, uh, hang out in the coffee houses, waiting for the end of the war, plotting the revolutions. It's and cabaret. Well, Tristan Zara, who was a young 20-year-old Romanian poet, had come uh, to Zurich uh, to be with, uh, to, to visit, or visit. Uh, he was running away from the Romanian army, but he had come to uh, to live with his friends, uh, Marcel and uh, Janko and his brothers, and looking desperately for something to do. Uh, they had already uh, written and uh, conducted a kind of mini avant-garde revolution in Bucharest before they got to Zurich, but uh, they had the good fortune of running into Hugo Ball and Emmy uh, Hennings, who had just rented a restaurant in um, in Zurich to put on cabaret performances. And they named it Cabaret Voltaire in honor of the great French skeptic. And um, they started mounting these outrageous performances every evening and uh, they had a very receptive audience because everyone was a refugee and how did you how did you research this Andre like what was the because um, when I was here in the MFA program Marie Howe assigned us each different topics and I happened to get data which was wonderful when I saw the the title of your latest book um, how did you research like the cabaret because was it what's left of it was it because I know there's print there's media like traces left of like the journals they made but how do you find out about the cabaret what are the artifacts well, the beauty of Dada is to have not left behind a whole lot of artifacts I mean there are there are, but they uh, were a movement that was dedicated very much to the destruction of their own productions because what mattered to them was the process of making art. And uh, so, yes, you can find, you know, the work by Marcel Duchamp at, uh, at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the famous uh, Armat urinal, or the upside-down urinal, right. or you can find, you know, various uh, writings of the periods, and uh, there is a Pretty big literature of Dada. I mean, about Dada, scholarly literature. So there's there's quite a bit to research if that's what. You but want how to... did you piece together like what the cabaret would be like? Because was I'm what? Because when you said it, I'm wondering if every night, because of like maybe the nature or non-nature of Dada, whatever it would embrace um, or not, um, like was it always new? Was that required? Like instead of like um, a stand-up comic that's honing, right? Uh, and performing nightly, this would be something completely different. Well, they are, they, there are contemporary accounts of what went on, and then, of course, Tristan Zara himself later wrote quite a bit about it, but uh, you're absolutely right that everything had to be new. I mean, this is one of the programs that they said to themselves was, 
A, the war is absurd. What's going on in Europe now is a, is proof of the bankruptcy of European thinking, of the failure of the Enlightenment to actually be enlightened in any way. And so we must start with art and overthrow art and Western art and what people think about art and philosophy as well. And so to do that, they they made absurd plays. They uh, read poems simultaneously. They improvised on stage. Uh, Marcel Yonko made some extraordinary masks that were at first reminiscent of African art or the kind of work Picasso was doing uh, because they're connected to a number of avant-garde artists in, in Europe. But uh, the, the necessity to do something new and the fact that the audience is so terribly emotionally overwrought by the war uh, created a, a dynamite combination. And so suddenly they found themselves, in fact, uh, uh, in 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 uh, deploying uh, an aesthetic, a, a machine of destruction that was quite new and, and powerful and, and, as it turns out, lasted for the rest of the century and is relevant in the 21st because what they actually made there didn't rust. Mm. Yes, the, yeah, because it's a... Because it's because they were sort of against machines in a way, like the machinery of, of things. Well, they perfected saying no. And so they said no to almost everything that uh, seemed reasonable to most reasonable people. And so uh, that uh, 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 manner of saying no and that energy... Uh, uh, appeals and still to to young people, and it certainly appealed to the punk generation and to the post-punk uh, artists. And uh, it's a kind of energy that is an essential part of art uh, that can't be museumified. You just can't put it in the museum. Now it's easy enough for other avant-garde movements like surrealism or cubism to be to be defined very quickly because they have a look you know what a surrealist painting looks like and so the museum of modern art for instance was able to put together a surrealist retrospective in the 1950s well they are never quite able to do that with dada you just can't because you can't really capture because it's on the move really and then it would be saying it wasn't that if you did manage to catch it for a moment well it was the move they also used extremely perishable materials some of oh, okay. the collages that hans harp and uh and uh, Hugo Ball are doing or made with very cheap stuff that they found around. Now, Dada had a great resurgence in New York when many of the Dadaists came to uh, get away from another horrific war that uh, <laughs> engulfed <laughs> Europe soon enough, and they came to New York, and New York was a, was a great... Uh, place for them because there was so much stuff that you could pick up at secondhand stores and make art in so many ways in which to 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 create to create theater in the public space and this and and this creating theater in the public space and this this ethos is is your own as well this process of making is what's primary in your own artistic life well, so it keeps me going as a, as a writer if I had to write the same thing twice I'd probably die of boredom it's why I'm not an actor either, because if I if I had to say the same thing every evening, I would just <laughs> I would just fall down and melt. <laughs> so it has to it has to be new. I mean, Ezra Pound said, "Make it new for his own reasons," but uh, I don't see how you could be an artist and not make it new. I mean, uh, you could make it perfect, and for many centuries, art was the um, skill of perfection. Uh, the aristocracy of Europe wanted things perfect. They didn't want things new. So they hired craftsmen, skilled people. But art uh, 
uh, they didn't want art. So art, <laughs> so art was a way that poor people had of making objects uh, from stuff they found, and it still is, if it has any energy, the 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 art of the poor, the 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 the, the uh, job and craft and. Uh, occupation of the poor yeah there, there's in one of the your your in interviews that you said that the poor make the art and then the, the then sell it to the rich like that's that's sort of the trajectory well, of it but then that's hopefully uh, how it happens I mean I'm not sure exactly where we are in that process but yeah. <laughs> 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 have you been to bread and puppet theater out in Glover Vermont Is yes I have because I, I thought you might like well because you're writing manifestos and I wondered if you ever saw the why cheap art manifesto that they have no, but this is wonderful because the Swai Cheap Art Manifesto is uh, is uh, has one of the very few features of Dada, which is type. They did use type. You recognize a, a, a Dada Manifesto by the use of type, and this is definitely it. And the brother and papa were inspired. They were political. They were. Uh, um, Performance-based. And uh, what's interesting about them is that they actually stayed in one place and they created a community uh, they didn't travel very much, and so the bread and puppets, if you wanted to see them, you had to go to Vermont and go to the woods and stay there. They go, <laughs> so. Yes, they, they, go to some, they go to some universities. I think they can, if you bring them, <laughs> I guess. But yeah. Art is food. That's right. Art has to be cheap and available to everybody. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love the I love the brother and puppet. They're they're great. They've 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 been around for so long there that they've buried their own uh, first generation of people and they made fantastic sculpture monuments of their graves in a whispering pine forest. It's quite quite remarkable. Yes, that is beautiful. And the I think the founder though he is still going strong and he I think he's in his seventies perhaps and he was up on stilts when I was there this summer. On stilts with a German accent. Yeah. <laughs> tallest man in the world. <laughs> um, well, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Andre Kodrescu here. The, his latest of many, The Post-Human Dada Guide, will be back. times for a minute Gossip rumors in your window Can I buy you another drink? The city's coming back I feel it It's back right now, don't you think? Then I look out by this window Where the quarter girls go by on bikes the Fresh flowers of the Tattoo like sailors on the street And I see only contractors and soldiers Tough hombres and country boys Not a floor among them as they stroll Casing up a made-up gal with dollar signs In her hard, hard eyes Set Please. 
tattoos of yesteryear Where did all the fresh flowers go? Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Andre Kodrascu here. His latest, The Posthuman Data Guide, Zara and Lennon Play Chess, um, a popular pastime in Zurich and also in Romania. It's well, it is a popular pastime in Zurich because it was a way to get away from the crowd. Because uh, playing chess is a way to be alone in a crowd, and uh, the players live in their own mental space and the kibitzers sit around and they are just uh, just white noise <laughs> um so you have tristan zara in his own uh world thinking about what they're going to do shocking enough at cabaret voltaire that night and then you have lennon who is probably not just thinking but also exchanging signals with some of his collaborators and conspirators because he's waiting to go to Russia and uh, take over. And part of that plan uh, is for the German high command to actually take Lenin and Radek and Zinoviev into Russia across Europe at the war and uh, take Russia out of the war. Uh, the German high command had an interest in um, uh, stopping, uh, taking Russia out of the war, and uh, had an interest in, in helping the Bolshevik Revolution succeed. And so uh, there was a lot Lenin had to think about. Yeah, a lot. So long, long days and nights at the cafe for Lenin. <laughs> well, in libraries. Lenin loved the libraries of oh. Zurich because uh, it's also a year... Uh, he'd spent a year of 1905 in Zurich uh, after the failure of the first attempt at the revolution in Russia. Uh, 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 failure he blamed on Trotsky, but uh, uh, he spent a very lonely year in 1905. Now, in 1916, it was more hopeful, although personally he was not any happier. He was pretty miserable. He was living with his uh, common-law wife, Nadia Krupskaya, in a, in a miserable, miserable room uh, with her bad, uh, mean Swiss landlord, and uh, his girlfriend... Uh, Don't make me feel sorry for Lennon. <laughs> I'm not going to feel sorry for him. <laughs> you know, I feel sorry. But his, his girlfriend, Ines Armand, who lived only an hour away in, uh, in, in, in Switzerland, wasn't uh, writing to him and wasn't seeing him, I guess. She gave up on him and was actually... Um, practicing some of their theoretical discussions of free love. So Lenin was pretty, <laughs> actually, <Distraught>. pretty depressed, <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> um, well, well, this, um, your your book, Andre, the, the Post-Human Data Guide, um, how did you settle on this format to talk about? Because it's obvious, just from once once you get started on it, there's like this unfolding of facts and story upon moment upon moment. It's, it's, it comes out, comes from you. <laughs> so is that why you designed the book the way you did? Like how, because um, often it seems like you're asked to talk about things, like you said, like uh, like a, a fire, like a, a glass association. And then you go and you prep and you, you know, research and research. But this is something so close to you that it's like you're surrounded by it. It's in you. 
So, uh, yeah. so how did you manage to harness it into a book? I needed. Uh, I, I, you're right. There was a whole uh, a whole lot of stuff, and I wanted a structure that was simple enough that it's part of everybody's brain, and I found the alphabet. Uh, so the book is organized alphabetically. I mean, yes, alphabetically, but um, in in odd ways. The alphabet organizes a vast amount of material, and uh, it's part of. Uh, an, so there is an expectation there. There is almost like a, a suspense and the and the narrative when you get from A to B and from B to C because it's just part of our. Like how how to transition or so? Uh, well, you're just you're reading B. I'm not sure what B is in there. Berlin, probably or uh, is it Ball Hugo Ball? Uh, Hugo Ball <laughs> Ball Hugo and uh, um, and then you're so you're waiting for C. Uh, and ah. so there is a sense of uh, surprise uh, that is actually built in one of the oldest and most predictable structures we have, which is the alphabet. <laughs> Yeah, that is interesting. That's something because I was wondering why you didn't decide to just because it's a guide. So it makes sense that there'd be like these regular divisions of some sort. Right. Because you had uh, earlier said something about the novel being one of your favorite forms because you can as long as you have a thread, you can throw everything you want into it, be it a recipe or whatever. <laughs> um, so but you purposely chose not to make like because you have a construct here. Well, in this the case, yeah. In this case, it was actually. A, 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 I was looking to reduce the material to to something uh, that was good in every sentence, but uh, was a lot less than was you could say about it. And I didn't. I wanted to surprise myself too, because I knew so much about it, and I didn't want to bore myself by. Uh, uh, repeating things other people have said about it. And so, I mean, my model in this instance was Tristan Zara, the poet, who was Romanian, who was Jewish, who was from a small town in, in, in Moldova. Who also who, renamed himself, who renamed like you. himself, yeah. His original name was Sammy Rosenstock, and uh, he's, he, he named himself Trist, Tristan Zara, which means Tristan Zara, which is sad in the country. <laughs> he, he was... <laughs> Sad in Moldova, sad in Romania, sad in the Balkans, Such a <laughs> sad point. in Europe. <laughs> it was a sad world, but uh, he was quite a, um, um, uh, an in intuited that something fundamental was 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 needed, and in 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 doing that, actually, he he invented posthumanity. I mean, he he connected the postmodernity in an amazing, un way i think there was a, a the war had created some kind of vacuum there and to which everything fell and melted away that w europe had considered up to that point uh, um, worthy of uh, of dignity and respect and so and and andre because we we're talking about the naming like why why did you rename yourself as well because it's interesting is it because um tristan zara was always a hero was it conscious or was it like what was your and and did you do it when you were still um over in romania i i don't have the time frame down or when you went to italy or when you arrived in detroit or well, when I was 14, uh, the writer's workshop in my hometown decided that I was ready to publish, and so they, I decided I should have a good Romanian name because 
my Jewish name Perlmutter was not uh, publishable in Romania at the time. Uh, communists, like the fascists before them, practiced, well, a different style of anti-Semitism, but you really couldn't publish under a Jewish name. But, so, and, but, uh, and so is that something where you just, you... Well, I could but have, that is about like also breaking down, like rebelling, right? So right, but they, there wasn't. Uh, but you're 14. Well, it was. That I, well, it wasn't just that I was 14, but it was also a tradition to, if you're a poet, to have uh, some kind of pseudonym, and so part of it was that, of course, if your name was, uh, you know, uh, tabletop, you changed it to something more poetic, like mountaintop. Uh, mountaintop, exactly. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I suppose part of that, you know, lyric tradition. And, of course, at 14, I really had no idea who to... I mean, I had never read anything by Tristan Zara. He was on the list of forbidden poets, and there were quite a few of them who didn't read. So, But I, I knew who he was, and I had a kind of a abstract admiration for this uh, other Romanian Jew who had broken the mold. <laughs> and so, anyway, I, I changed it to something called steu, which means crag or rock. And it was... Uh, That's strong. Yes, and when you write it down, it's S-T-E-I-U, but by hand, the U looks like an N, so it looks like Stein, so I really didn't get very far from the Jewish business. And so... For rebelling. So I made up Cadrescu in Italy when I sent back some poems to a Romanian newspaper, and uh, then I realized that unconsciously I was practicing myself a kind of internal anti-Semitism because Codranu was one of the founders of the fascist Iron Guard in Romania and a notorious anti-Semite. And so Codrescu and Codranu are pretty close. And at that point, I, I, I knew it, and I decided that I would just become more famous than the fascist, and I would just make him, um, you know, leave him in the dust. Yeah, diminish him. And But why Son of Woods? Like, what was the meaning behind that were you from a like a forested area yeah or? i grew up yeah i grew up in the mountains in the woods and i always loved the woods and i live in the woods now so it turns out that you know names are destiny you do end up uh, fulfilling it in some way or another <laughs> so that's that is pretty good well you know what why don't we hear let's you know find a random spot or so here well let's the... play another okay. game of, of oracular <laughs> reading you know, the way i usually practice this is uh uh, you, you can ask me a question, any question, whether personal or not, or uh, intimate or trivial, and I'll open the book and I'll answer it. Okay. Um, uh, if you had a daughter, what would you have named her? Collage. The preeminent expression of the 20th century. Picasso and Braque introduced newspapers into their paintings of random objects whose forms were more important than their objective models. A whole universe of the 20th century's new objects came into view, especially the newspapers and their advertisements. Tsara brought it home. Quote, to make a Dadaist poem, take a newspaper, take a pair of scissors, choose an article as long as you are, planning to make your poem, then take the scraps out one after the other in the order in which they left the bag, copy conscientiously, this poem will be like you, and here you are, a writer, infinitely original, and endowed with a sensibility that is charming, though beyond the understanding of the vulgar. So, of course, if I had a daughter, I would name her Collage. Collage. <laughs> no. I mean, who wouldn't, really? Collage Kodrasko. It is. It's, it does have, it's beautiful, actually. When you said it, I was like, that works. Well, my theory is that good books, actually, if they're any good, uh, will answer your questions. Uh, and bad books won't. And so this is a very easy way to shop. You go to the store, and you ask it a question, and you open the book. And if it answers it, buy it. What, um, how do you come up with new questions to ask your, your own books, Andre? 
Like well, everybody has questions, you know. I mean, we, we live in a sea of questions. What am I going to have for lunch? I mean, <laughs> should we see? <laughs> hey, it's past lunchtime. That's not, that's not fair. <laughs> well, well the, so thank well, thanks for the example. So we opened to the seas there. We had that. Um, well, there you go. I mean, the connections are endless. So, uh, part of the pleasure of writing about Dada is that you really can't go wrong by making the most uh, outlandish jump or leap into the, to something else because it will connect somehow and in a way that's hopefully surprising. And how, uh, I mean, we've, oh, we've got, let's see, well, why don't we, um, we'll take a short break, Andre. I'd like to talk about your making of poems as well, like whether, um, I don't know, because you've got, you've now you've got quite, quite a catalog and you publish with coffeehouse press is that and black sparrow for your poetry is that usually the yeah i have a long and boring bibliography it's so super long it's like yeah. yeah i mean you could read that and have a whole show but i mean this is just a kind of a wait the reason i write those things is so i can get rid of us so i can do something fresh does it bother you that they, they become don't other people's obsessions yeah yes <laughs> so. yeah but what if they don't de like um deconstruct themselves like or uh, destroy themselves like that that element of like the making it's the process not the the artifact How well, well for me it's just getting rid of certain things i think and then uh, cleaning the hard drive and then i feel i feel new and give all my uh obsessions to other people and i'm uh, kind of i think writers are self-cleaning insects they just take this stuff in your head and they clean 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 it up so you can start again what kind of insect would you be then like what sort of uh, all, all the insects do that i think roaches do that you know they clean their they're very fastidious and hardy yes and shiny some of them and some of them are shiny we're gonna take a short break we'll be back with andre kodrescu i'm t hetzel you've got living writers and now a short break You're tuned to the Living Writers Program on WCBN-FM, continuing now as T. Hetzel interviews Andre Kodrescu. In person. NPR superstar here at WCBN. <laughs> oh, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, well, I you've was, got a lot of things going. I was beginning to feel humble. <laughs> okay, well, then let's go back to your biography. Well, actually, I do have a question. Why Detroit? When you came to the States from Italy, what landed you um, on streety Detroit? I loved that word that <laughs> you used to describe it, um, yeah, streety Detroit. Well, I, I heard there was a place that was dark, gloomy, and... Uh, <laughs> 
and desperate. <laughs> uh, like <laughs> Celine, I decided to come to Detroit. Now, what happened is my mother, uh, I, we emigrated together, and she did have a friend who uh, sponsored our emigration, and uh, Hayes, uh, the Jewish uh, help organization, uh, at the time was providing Eastern European refugees with some three months of allowance for uh, rent and food. And so highest in Detroit uh, had, a, had, a, had that available for us until my mother found a job. She was a printer. And um, we, um, a we printer lived here. A printer with letterpress or, or what? She uh, worked for a printer in my hometown of Sibiu in Romania, which is a very was a, uh, is a very old medieval town, and printing was one of the oldest uh, professions in town. The guild, there was a printer's guild there, almost contemporary to Gutenberg uh, in the 16th century. So she learned. Uh, uh, color separation from uh, in this printing uh, concern, and when we uh, when we emigrated, this was a high demand job. There were no women in that profession because it involved at the time before computers uh, lifting all sorts of heavy plates of metal and so on. But she persisted and really became the first woman to do that for a company called Progressive Color in Washington, which printed the National Geographic in books for the Museum of Modern Art. So she was a very highly skilled um, uh, color separator. And and so, but you came to Detroit, and then you you were there, and it was right before the riots began. So you were there as, um, yeah. Well, yeah, I do have a, I do have a knack for historical moments. Uh, uh, we got here in 1966. In 1967, Detroit was in flames; it was burning, and uh, we were driving on John Lodge Expressway, and the. Uh, Radio was playing Jose Feliciano uh, singing "Come on, baby, light my fire," <laughs> and as we turned around, downtown was in flames. So it was a, a momentous uh, time. And then a few minutes later, of course, the 82nd Airborne and the National Guard were rolling down Woodward Avenue, pointing uh, their guns at any heads that appeared after curfews. So. You know, I, I had come from a nice, peaceful communist country into a very turbulent and interesting place. And then I went to New York. I was 1968 to find my fellow poets on the Lower East Side, and there they were, 1968 and that's why you to 1969. Yeah. To find where you believe sure. the poets. Okay. And uh, lived there for a time, and those uh, uh, were years also of gigantic demonstrations against the Vietnam War. My generation was pretty... Uh, torn between, uh, you know, the, the the ones who did go to the war, the ones who didn't. There was a real generation gap. A hair curtain fell between generations. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't from, heard about I the hair f- curtain. I came from the iron one, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I've done, I found the hair one. Uh, 1968 was the year in Prague when the Soviet uh, the troops uh, um, suppressed the, the revolt um, of the of the Czech students. Uh, 1968 was the year in Paris when uh, um, uh, uh, revolution. Uh, happened, and um, uh, the Situationists were creating their new data world as well. So it was a very eventful uh, time in the West, and it was I had more of a sense of generational solidarity than I did about any specific uh, place or or or, uh, 
or politics. Uh, yeah, national like, borders. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I felt like Detroit and Paris, and then, of course, later that year, Chicago in 1968, where you had the absolutely notorious riots in, uh, during the Democratic Convention. And uh, 1968 was when uh, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King were assassinated. So uh, it was a thrill of a minute. And it which, didn't matter whether you had any money or not. Which, which leads me to the Hoo Hoo Inn. Was that before you left? <laughs> <laughs> that, does that place still exist? Well, or? I don't know, but now I want to see if it does. I want to drive in there because, it, well, you said you got a fortune cookie there. Or was that just another thing that wasn't quite true, but it could be true? No, no, it was. It was, it was, it was called a Ho Ho Inn. And it was on Cass, I think, in, in Detroit. And it was the only, it was a late night uh, Chinese greasy spoon. <laughs> Students like to go there and, and after drinking and, you know. To soak some of it up. Right. And uh, <laughs> the place was, you know, it was very amusing. And actually, in, in a funny way, it was about the only exotic, quote unquote, food around because it was uh, those days of still um, mash, mashed potatoes <laughs> and, <laughs> and meatloaf. Thai restaurants hadn't uh, come. Oh, Maybe nah. there wasn't a Greek town yet. <laughs> well, no, there was a Greek town. Well, actually, was, okay. Greek town was here, but not that many. There were like two or three Greek restaurants. And, yeah. But but you got a fortune cookie there, right? Or was that was that just a story you made up that said tomorrow you read the corpse or something? Was that sort of a life direction? Or, um, oh, you must have read this in the editorial to the, yes. the Exquisite Corpse. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, That's why I'm wondering if it's real or not, or what part of it is real. I don't know why I should care, but... <laughs> well, I don't remember, but I mean, obviously, fortune cookies are as good as anything else about predicting the, <laughs> predicting what's going to happen. They're as good as astrology, certainly. So, um, Or asking a good book. You know, I mean, anyone who doesn't have a fortune cookie taped to the refrigerator, you know, I don't think trust them. Don't, don't, don't trust, trust them. <laughs> Indeed. But you, st so then you started the Exquisite Corpse in like 1983, but it was a print medium then, probably as a gesture towards your mom as well. Like, would she, did you ever Im imagine that would it would, well, no. Well, you know, well, it's a good question. Because yeah. you've left behind the print medium well, aspect of it. It's a good question. It. I mean, I'm, nobody's brought up the Oedipole angle until now, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's, we, we published Exquisite Corpse as a literary journal in, uh, in Baltimore because uh, most literary magazines are terribly boring in 1983, and I thought we would make a sassy-looking uh, publication that uh, had some nerve and some scandalous feel to it and uh, also publish good writers who weren't getting published and uh, it's it caught on so we published it originally it was a monthly which was entirely too much work and then right. it became a quarterly really? <laughs> i took it with me to uh to um baton rouge to louisiana and it was a print journal and from 1983 until 1996 and then we were one of the first magazines to go entirely to the internet because I, I figured that uh, the, it was over for print. And uh, we, we uh, corpse.org. <laughs> you got that. Corpse.org. C-O-R-P-S-E.org was one of the few literary magazines actually on, on the net and on the web in, um, then. Of course, since then, yeah, there, yeah. there are many, and the forms changed and mutated very quickly. 
But uh, yeah, it was a, was a way to stay amused in, uh, in, in the literary world, which is for the most part pretty boring. And was that Maybe less boring now. Well, well, actually, we, as you were saying what the mission was at the onset, I'm, I'm hoping that, I mean, that's probably a mission that you've stayed true to even now, like sassy, some scandal. And, and now it's like, it seems like it's more global, like people more can access it quicker. So that would be a plus of it. But I wondered if something, anything was lost in the transition from print to well, some, something was lost in my transition because I managed to insult quite a few people, so there went all my great prizes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> how kidding. did you insult them? What did oh, you well, because there's we, still prizes because for you, our, Andre. Our reviews, well, I'm, yes, of course, there's <laughs> one right here. But um, I'm just, you know, uh, we we reviewed books and talked about literature in the, in the way that we talked about it at the bar. So we were direct and we were not sparing of feelings and we called things what we thought they were. And so that was rather an unusual uh, uh, thing to do in print. You have to be a bit more delicate, perhaps? Uh, well, you had to be delicate. And there was a whole, a whole etiquette to actually reviewing books. I mean, people didn't give bad reviews to books that seemed uh, insignificant, really, because they were published in five copies. But we, we took everything seriously. And so I thought part of the idea of being serious was to talk about them as if they mattered. And so... Um, well, that shows respect. I think so. And, uh, I, I, well, of course, we took on quite a few establishment figures who are then, you know, uh, well well known in this little sort of world and, and uh, uh, made enemies, which was fine. But, uh, you know, to go back to your question about if something is lost uh, from print, we lost our intimate readership to people who are subscribing and actually reading the journal and suddenly but then we had more readers and suddenly there are kids in japan who are running into the into the web uh, site and uh, uh, google analytics now tells us that there are people who actually spend more than two and a half minutes on the site which is pretty interesting because i think you know 20 seconds these days is a lot and uh, so there are it's a different audience and to my mind it's probably a uh, a better one because I think that the people who read us before they are faithful readers, but uh, uh, they were also collectors, and the collectors will be around. I mean, they never they're never going to go anywhere. But as far as content and reading, uh, you're you're better uh, in the new media because it doesn't freshness or yeah, and it doesn't matter what you read. You can sit with your Kindle in uh, in the subway or with your iPhone and read uh, uh, the New York Times, or you can read porn and. Nobody knows what you're reading, and it doesn't matter. So this this kind of um, so some Christmas gifts to think about, <laughs> Hanukkah. So, yeah. yeah, but this idea, <laughs> Get you know, your love, loved one a Kindle. So when, that they when can you be when you read phenomenal. the Times, for instance, you're a Times reader. People see you reading the New York Times. So oh, there is right. a there is a pose to reading the Times, you know, as opposed mm. to anything else. But you're, you're you're reading your screen. Nobody has any idea what you're reading. So you're actually reading for content. Mm. Yeah. It's your own identity, not the identity you want to portray. To project. So it relieves you really of the necessity to, to have a public persona as a reader. Although I do feel, I don't know, I, I'm somehow really resistant to the whole, that the Kindle. I can see that it's, it does save paper, though. You like to be seen with Marcel Proust. 
<laughs> yeah, get out of bed first. We're going for a walk. <laughs> Not so much that. I guess I just like the artifact. Like, I like the look of your book, even. Like, I think um, Princeton did a nice job with this. He did a very good job. They're like publishing a new book uh, come in the next year called The Poetry Lesson, which is the distilled 25 years of my uh, uh, suffering as a professor. <laughs> it, uh, I don't mean to laugh. It's funny, actually. It's a, it's, I think it's a very funny book. <laughs> Some of my colleagues may not think so. Ooh, more enemies ahead, Andre? Well, I mean, uh, enemies. I mean, if you can still make enemies, it means you're alive. Yeah, exactly. I, I you know a woman when I was riding my bike to work, a woman yelled at me when she was walking diagonal across the cross, uh, you know, the intersection. And I thought, this is good. It's funny that she's yelling at me while she's on her phone walking diagonally across. I don't know why I'm telling this story. Andre, it's proof you're alive. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> Let's take a short break. We'll be back um, today on the program. Andre Kodrescu, his latest, the Posthuman Dada Guide. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got T. Hetzel and Living Writers here, Tex in the engineering seat, and special guest star Andre Kodrescu here in the studio. Um, thanks again for coming, Andre, for being here. Well, my pleasure. Uh, is it true Alan Ginsberg was here? Yeah, yeah, he was here, and he said some, you know, WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and he, yeah. Yeah, uh, he was, I don't, I he don't, was the first I poet I came to visit when I came to uh, when I went to New York. I went to find him on uh, Third Street in the Lower East Side, and uh, I asked these guys sitting in front if they knew if Alan Ginsberg lived there, and they had a little conference, and they said, "No, we don't know who that is." <laughs> because they were protecting him, or what? Was no, that? they just didn't know. They were just an old apartment building on the Lower East Side. So I went in and looked at the mailboxes that were all opened then with uh, delinquent teenage screwdrivers, and there was Alan and Peter Orlovsky's name. And so, what did you do? Did you go up and knock on yeah, the door? I just went up and knocked at the door, and a perfectly naked, dripping wet Peter Orlovsky opened the door, and he wasn't talking at the time. Alan wasn't home. So I sat around, for, you know, Peter went back into the bathtub where he was spending all his time then, and he, 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 I looked at him, he looked at me, and then I felt uh, like well, maybe it was time to leave, and I got up, and then Alan came home, and he was quite affable and wonderful, and we had a long conversation in Alan's bad French, and mine slightly better, but not much, and uh, he gave me a lot of books, and we became friends. Ha, ah, and so, so that's like, uh, you should talk to your poetic 